Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and to turn them open to the book of Philippians. If you do not own a Bible, know there's one in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not have a Bible, know that we have some extras on the table in the foyer. Feel free to grab one of those on your way out. Uh, Tonight, we're starting a new series, a new study. We're going to walk through the book of Philippians together. Under this theme, under this title, under this series emphasis called Indestructible Joy, And so it's a wonderful little letter that we're going to walk through together. And to be honest with you, the burden of this series stems from three assumptions, uh, I think, that are fair for us to make. Three assumptions that I believe to be true about each and every one of us and each and every other person that we might meet and engage uh, on a day-to-day basis. The first assumption uh, that kind of provides the burden of this series and why I think the Lord is leading us into the book of Philippians is quite simply everyone in this room and everyone we know seeks happiness. Everybody we know wants to be happy. I've yet to meet a single person who said, Andrew, uh, my goal in life is to be sad. Now, I've met people who seem to only be happy when they are sad, but uh, that's kind of a different thing. It's kind of like that mid-90s grunge rock song, I'm Only Happy When It Rains, is kind of the soundtrack of their life, or maybe they're a Mariners fan, and so every year they, they just kind of love the misery that comes with having high expectations at the beginning of the year, only to see those kind of fall, I'm only happy when it rains. But I think it's fair to say that every person in this room and every person we meet wants to be happy. And is this search for happiness, this desire for joy is what drives us to do all the things that we do. It's what drives some people to get married. It's what drives other people to stay single. It's what drives some couples to want kids. It's what drives other couples to not want kids. It's what drives us uh, to pursue riches. It's what drives us to make the friends that we make. It's why we vote the way that we vote. It's why we uh, march in the streets when we march in the streets. There's this desire and drive for a sense of happiness. That, that we are all seeking, that we are all pursuing. A French philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal put it uh, more eloquently than anyone I have read when he said this. He, he said, all people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every person, get this, including those who hang themselves. It's a fair assumption that we can make that every person in this room and every person we're engaging outside these walls is seeking happiness. So that's one assumption we're making that's kind of driving us into this series. The second assumption is that you and I, uh, it is clear that we live in a culture where it seems as though everyone's trying to make us happy. We live in a culture where everybody uh, wants to make us happy. They are capitalizing on this search for happiness that we are all uh, incessantly engaged in. This is the drive behind every marketing campaign, every advertisement you see, every commercial you watch, every billboard uh, image you see projected on the interstate or wherever you may be. Uh, All of these advertising and marketing campaigns that project images of fit and fancy people uh, implying to every viewer that whatever they're offering would unlock the key to happiness in your life. You have to get what they're selling. You have to buy what they're offering. This is also kind of the drive behind talk show hosts and gurus and and life coaches. This is the basis behind a lot of religions and a lot of spiritualities. Everyone wants to be happy, and it seems like we live in a culture where everyone is trying to make us happy. 
But the challenge to this, if that is true, if those are true assumptions to make, it's kind of ironic and it's kind of uh, disheartening to discover that not many people, and here's the third assumption, not many people are actually happy. So everybody wants to be happy. We live in a culture that's really centered on making people happy with consumerism and various things, but it doesn't seem like many people are actually happy. I mean, you just think, the, you just think about the country that we live in right now. We live in a culture, I don't know if you know this, but we live in a culture where every year Americans eat on average, every American eats on average 46 slices of pizza a year. Now, if you take all of that into consideration, that's enough pizza to cover 100 acres of land. That's, that factors into being about 350 slices of pizza per second. And we're still not happy. There, there's something wrong in our pursuit of happiness if you can have that and still be miserable on some level. But then you take it a little more seriously and you say, well, every year there's about 16 million adults who are diagnosed with some severe form of depression. You think about um, an article I read in The Atlantic the other day that, that cited uh, that today's college students seek campus counseling services more often than any other generation in the modern history of the United States. And as students on college campuses are flooding counseling offices, the main concern they tend to bring into that space is a concern with anxiety and a concern with depression. And what's really striking about that statistic is that the rise of the demand for counseling services on a college campus, the rise for that demand is outpacing enrollment by five times. High demand. We live in a culture where everyone wants to be happy, everyone is trying to make us happy, but it seems as though nobody is actually happy. Then you consider more broadly the city of Seattle. There was a time in which Seattle ranked second on a, on a study of about 33 metropolitan areas. Seattle ranked number second on suicide rates. This bridge looming above our building, Aurora Bridge, there was a time when that was the number two suicide bridge in the country behind only San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. Suicide, depression, anxiety, all of these things that are showing that disclosing a lack of happiness, a lack of satisfaction, a lack of what the scriptures refer to as joy. And what's really challenging about this, if we're making these assumptions that everyone wants to be happy, that we live in a culture where everyone's trying to make us happy, but it turns out not many people are actually happy, you find yourself, and we find ourselves so often, basically on a merry-go-round, a circular circus that's just spiraling downwards, because what happens is, we have an idea of what would make us happy and we go for that and we get that, but then we discover that what it was advertised in that offer of happiness just isn't all that cracked up. All, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. For example, there are single people who think that they'll be most happy if they could just get married, but then they get married and marriage turns out to be harder than they realize. Or perhaps some moms and some uh, couples want to have kids and they think that kids will just bring a sense of happiness into their lives. Now, sure, kids are a joy. Kids are a blessing. We love the kids in our lives, but kids are hard. And having kids is demanding. It's not a joyful occasion every moment. And if our kids become the chief source of our joy and happiness, and we're going to find ourselves frustrated on many, many occasions and on many days. 
There are others who might think that this particular promotion is what they're going after, thinking if they get that promotion, that'll deepen their bank account so that they can have the standard of living that they want. But then they slide into that job and they pursue that career only to find that their job is far more demanding than they realize. And the demands of that job is actually depleting their life joy. It's depleting their sense of happiness and life productivity. And then what happens on this kind of circular circus with the downward spiral when we get what we get and we find out that it's not what it's all cracked up to be or it's not coming through as advertised in our minds or in our hearts, we begin to self-medicate and we start looking to other outlets to kind of remedy the dissatisfaction we're having with that which we thought would bring us joy, that which we thought would bring us happiness. So we begin to self-medicate with alcohol and drugs and pornography, binge-watching Netflix, escaping the mundane, escaping our feelings of unhappiness and dissatisfaction in a myriad of ways. And what's interesting, there was a guy now by the name of another philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard who cued into this aspect of the human condition and he realized long ago that people want to be happy and nobody actually is happy and when we find ourselves unhappy, we try to distract ourselves from not being happy. And so he says, if I could just give each person who is sad or bored or whatever the case may be, who's just intent on distracting themselves from that which they are dissatisfied with, I would advise, I would counsel each and every one of them to just sit alone in silence in their room so that they can meditate on their misery. You might hear that and think, well, that's pretty harsh. That seems strange. Why would anybody want to just sit alone in silence and meditate on your misery? And, and I would argue that Soren Kierkegaard is cueing in on, to the, on what I think is needed in our lives. We are so distracted, we are so busy in our pursuit of happiness and joy that we don't take the time to sit in silence and to meditate on how unsatisfying these things are that we're seeking satisfaction in. How they're not coming through for us as advertised. So if we could just find some time and some space in our hearts and in our lives to just sit and be still, to embrace the mundane, to embrace boredom, chances are we'll begin to see that these sources of joy that we are depending too much on are actually broken sources and they cannot do for us as advertised. This is precisely what God said about his people back in Jeremiah's day in the Old Testament. There was a moment when the prophet Jeremiah was diagnosing the human condition or God was speaking through him in that direction and listen to how he described his people in that day. Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. The prophet says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, and if you hear God is saying, my people have committed two evils, one of them is that they've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and they're seeking water in these broken wells, water in these broken cisterns. That's a strange way to talk about something that's evil. But it kind of on the flip side shows us something about the heart of God. If it is evil for you and I to not find life and joy in God, then it must be possible for us to find life and joy in God. That was the indictment in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. And I'm convinced that so many of us in our pursuit of happiness are drawing water from broken cisterns. We're drawing water from sources that that can't really hold water and they cannot do for us what we would ultimately hope for them to do. And so it is this burden that's really driving us into the book of Philippians. It is that perspective that's driving us into this study because this little letter nestled in the middle of the New Testament written by a guy named Paul to a a young church in a city called Philippi, this letter, uh, a major theme of it is indestructible joy. 
And you're going to discover as you read through this book over the next several weeks that the word joy or some variation of it appears more than 12 times in four short chapters. And what's interesting about this letter is that although it emphasizes joy and it's putting joy out there as kind of the theme of the letter and the theme of Paul's life and the theme that he hopes to ingrain into the hearts of the people he's writing to and by extension you and me, he's writing this letter from a prison cell. He's writing this letter in a situation that isn't favorable. It's not a prosperous moment in Paul's life when he's writing this letter. In fact, all the circumstances seem to challenge and contradict his experience of joy. But yet time and time and time again over the course of these four chapters, you see him echoing uh, this refrain about rejoicing in the Lord and finding your life in Christ and all these beautiful themes. And so I just want to study this letter in an effort to figure out, okay, what was it about Jesus and what was it about the gospel that enabled Paul to write these words from a prison cell? And what about Paul's writing? What would help you and I discover indestructible joy? Is that available? And if it is really available in this life, how is it attainable? How do we kind of key into it? And so that's the burden and the direction for this new series titled Indestructible Joy. Tonight, we're just going to dip our toe in the first two verses of this little letter. So if you look at the first two verses of chapter one, this is what we read. It's the introduction. It's the prelude. You might describe it as as a pregnant prelude, one that's just packed with all kinds of good, uh, deep thoughts for us to consider tonight. Verse one of chapter one, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it begins just by announcing Paul as the author. He's writing this letter to his friends in Philippi, but he also mentions this guy, Timothy. And the reason for that is because he and Timothy both share deep affection for the people in Philippi. They love this church, and the church, you'll learn through the letter, really loves Paul and loves Timothy. And the reason for that is because Paul and Timothy helped start that church. They helped plant the church in Philippi. They were part of what God did to birth the church in that city. So Paul and Timothy are two leaders who love the church. They are loved by the church. And really, if you want to think about leadership, there's a... There's a lot to consider in that dynamic. There was a president of Malawi, uh, Joyce Banda, who uh, was ruling and leading uh, during Nelson Mandela's time and space. And, and she learned this, just observing him and how people responded to Mandela as he was writing letters from his prison cell and the interaction that he would have with the people who trusted him and followed him. This is what she said about leadership. She said, I learned that leadership is about falling in love with the people you're leading. And it's about the people falling in love with you, the leader. She says, that's what I learned from Mandela. And you and I might say, this is what we can learn from Paul, and this is what we can learn from Timothy. They were leaders who loved their people. And their people loved them, particularly the church at Philippi. So Paul and Timothy are pictured together here in verse 1, and they are there because they helped start this church. Now, uh, it would be a good thing for us to consider how this church started before we dive further into the letter. So uh, I would encourage you at some point between now and next Sunday to read through Acts chapter 16 and just read the story of how the church got started in in Philippi. I will uh, summarize it for you as best I can. 
So in Acts chapter 16, we are told that Paul and Timothy and a couple other guys, Silas and uh, Luke, they entered the city of Philippi, which was the city in northeastern Greece. Uh, They entered through a port in Neapolis and traveled on into Philippi. Philippi is described in Acts chapter 16 as a leading city. It was an important city. It wasn't a huge city, but it was strategic in the sense that there was a major trade route that kind of ran through the city of Philippi. One unique factor about that city was that it was a Roman colony. People described it as a little Rome because of its, uh, the way it was laid out, modeled Rome. The dress and the culture was very Roman. It wasn't a place that was Jewish in any way, shape, or form. And in many ways, it wasn't very Greek. It was a Roman colony. And Paul went there after Jesus told him he couldn't go somewhere else. So at first, Paul wanted to go to Asia and preach the gospel and plant churches, but the Holy Spirit showed up for some reason, unbeknownst to us, uh, and told Paul that now's not the time. You're not going to Asia. I want you to go to Macedonia. I want you to go uh, to Europe. And so Paul and his pals set sail across the Aegean Sea, and they landed in the Neapolis port and traveled on up to Philippi a few miles down the road. And this was what Paul was told to do. When The angel of the Lord, or the angel showed up, this vision that Paul received at night, uh, this messenger told Paul, I want you to go to Macedonia and proclaim the gospel explicitly. I want you to go proclaim the gospel. And the reason why that's significant for us is because many of us, uh, we are, as a young church here in the city, we are a church plant. We are a new church that started up in this city, and we've been a part of planting other churches and other places in this region. And sometimes we can be swept up in the idea of planting churches that we can miss our chief calling. You see, when Paul went to Macedonia and he stepped into Philippi, he did not go there uh, leading the charge to plant a church. He went there to proclaim the gospel. See, it's possible for us to plant churches, to start services, to gather crowds, to gather people together and do things as a church, but miss the foundation upon which every church should spring, the foundation upon which every church should grow and be built. In other words, our goal in this city isn't ultimately to plant churches. Our goal is to proclaim the gospel. Our goal is to tell people the story of Jesus. Our goal is to help people come to believe that Jesus lived for them, died for them, rose from the grave for them. And what you'll find, if you and I give ourselves to proclaiming the gospel, churches will arise. Churches will be planted. Churches will start growing. And that's significant for you and me because what you and I win people with is ultimately what we win them to. And so if we start services or we start churches based on any other foundation than the proclamation of the gospel, then we're going to have to continue doing those things to keep people and to do what we're doing as a church and our foundation will be faulty and we'll start growing in a trajectory that is unhealthy and eventually whatever's happening or whatever started will crumble and fall. It will be no more. You see, the mission of the church isn't to plant churches primarily. The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel. That's what Paul was called to do, and that's what we are called to do, and churches will result as as we do that. But what's interesting is Paul stepped into the city and he began proclaiming the gospel. I love the story of how this church got started because Paul uh, proclaimed the, the gospel to three different types of people in Acts chapter 16, and he used three different approaches to each of them. 
The first person Paul met when he arrived in Philippi was this woman named Lydia, and she was meeting with another group of people outside of the city gate in Philippi, and they were studying the Old Testament together. Lydia was a, young, was a business professional, professional, a highly resourceful woman, a highly respected woman. She was also someone who was interested in the God of Israel. We would describe her as a God-fearer. There was something going on in her life that drove her to want to study the Old Testament with other people. And there wasn't a synagogue for her to go into because in order for there to be a synagogue in any city, you had to have at least 12 Jewish men present there for a synagogue to begin. But apparently that demographic did not exist in Philippi, so Lydia and her friends started their own kind of Bible study. They left the city, they went outside the walls of Philippi, uh, set up a picnic blanket of sorts next to the river, and they started reading the Bible together. And when Paul showed up in Philippi, his instinct and what he normally did when he stepped into a new city was to go right to a synagogue and start sharing with them about how Jesus is the Messiah, but there was no synagogue for him to go to. So when he heard about Lydia and her friends, he went out, he found them, and he sat down with them. And we are told that Paul uh, showed them how the Old Testament points them to Jesus. And they began to read the Bible together and study the Bible. And it's a beautiful description. As Lydia was sitting under the teaching of the scriptures, it says that her heart opened up to receive the words that were being said. And she became the first Christian in Philippi. And all of her friends put their faith in Jesus as their hearts were opened as a response of the quiet, subtle, uh, non-flashy teaching of the scriptures next to a river outside the city. So she, was, she and her friends were the first group of Christians, but then the next, uh, not long after that, Paul journeyed into the city, and he began to walk through the city, and as he did so, uh, a slave girl, we, told, we are told, came up to Paul and began to annoy him. Uh, this was a slave girl who we learn at first had some type of spirit of divination. There was some kind of demonic activity in her life. And so when Paul was talking about Jesus, she wanted to kind of annoy that out of credibility. And so she just started following Paul and, and just always in his ear, kind of mocking uh, what he was about and mocking what he was standing for. And, and eventually Paul uh, couldn't take it anymore. So he turned to her and he spoke Jesus' name to her and he, and he told the demon to leave. And eventually, and immediately, it says that this, this spirit of divination left the girl and she was set free from that demonic oppression, from that demonic uh, possession, and her life was changed. The problem was this slave girl, because she was a fortune teller, and now that she was healed, she could no longer practice that trade, her handlers didn't, weren't happy about that. They got mad at Paul, and so they rallied a crowd to oppose Paul, and they threw some trumped-up charges at him, and long story short, Paul and Silas landed in prison. They got put in the stocks. So they go from a quiet Bible study next to a river to this intense encounter in the middle of the city, only to later find themselves Selves in prison. While they were in prison, Paul, like all prisoners, had a Roman guard watching over him. And this Roman guard was responsible for keeping prisoners in the prison. But we're told later on in the chapter that Paul and Silas began to sing songs to God. They were worshiping the Lord deep into the night, and then an earthquake hit Philippi. And when this earthquake hit, and the walls began to crack and crumble, and the gates flew open, and Paul's chains broke out. Paul, in that moment, had a chance to go free. He could have left and been a free man. But what's amazing about that, Paul uh, loved this Roman jailer too much to leave him behind. He understood the culture that said if a Roman or a, if a prison guard ever loses a prisoner, that would result in deep shame on that person's life, and many prison guards would be expected to take their own lives. 
due to the shame, due to the embarrassment, due to the failure on their part to keep prisoners in check. But Paul and Silas, when they have this opportunity to go free, they refuse to leave because they know that this man um, is going to commit suicide if they do. So they stay there. And this man can't believe that they're, they're willing to stick around and love him this way. So eventually he starts asking Paul questions about Jesus, asking Paul questions about salvation. And Paul shares the gospel with him. And this man becomes a follower of Jesus, finds his joy in Jesus. And we're told his entire household followed suit and they all started following Jesus together. So you, the church was birthed in Philippi as a result of this businesswoman, this redeemed slave girl and this uh, Philippian jailer all coming to meet Jesus in a different kind of way. Three different types of people, three different approaches, one gospel. To help you understand this and get a picture of it, here's a chart to kind of break down some of the, the differences between each of these individuals. You have Lydia who was racially and she was Asian, slave girl, native Greek, the jailer, Roman. Economically, Lydia was a highly wealthy woman. The slave girl was presumably poor. Uh, the jailer was kind of a blue-collar worker. He was just a hard worker doing his job trying to provide for his family. Then spiritually speaking, Lydia was a God-fearer. She was interested in the God of Israel, reading the Old Testament. The slave girl was in spiritual turmoil. She was oppressed by demonic activity. The jailer, uh, you might describe him as kind of a pragmatist who might have been indifferent to spiritual things, might not have been all that into uh, the gospel and the God of Paul until that crisis arose in his life. And then you look at the ministry approaches, how these individuals met Jesus, how did the proclamation of the gospel come to them? Well, for Lydia, it came through, came through words, the teaching of the Old Testament in that quiet Bible study by the river. The slave girl, it came through this power encounter, this deed, this merciful moment where Paul spoke in the name of Jesus and, and, brought and set her free from demonic oppression. This jailer who comes to faith because Paul's selfless example has an opportunity to go free and he stays behind, he stays there to love this man and this jailer starts asking questions as a result of Paul's example, asking questions about Jesus. So you find different people coming to faith in Jesus as in response to different approaches. And you think about what that means for you and I. Well, as we exist in this city, our desire is to proclaim the gospel to a wide range of people. And we want to employ a wide range of methods and strategies and approaches to minister the gospel, to proclaim the gospel in this city and around the world. This means that some of us want to find context to teach the Bible to people who are perhaps not yet followers of Jesus, but they are interested in spiritual things. They want to learn more about the Bible, so we want to find context to sit down with the scriptures and have those quiet, unassuming, non-flashy Bible studies with them. Over coffee, over dinner, whatever the case may be, we want to find context to have spiritual conversations over the scriptures with people who are showing interest in the scriptures. But then at the same time, we want to be a church that proclaims the gospel and is awarded opportunity to talk about Jesus because we are practicing deeds of mercy. We're going after those who are oppressed and afflicted. We're going after those who are tormented spiritually and emotionally and physically and psychologically in this city. We want to find ways to engage them, to love them, to help them find their joy and freedom and life in Jesus. We want to with that would come practicing deeds of mercy and doing those types of things. But then we also want to be a group that witnesses through our selfless examples. I love the Philippian jailer's story because that tells us that Paul was simply 
uh, he, he took advantage of the opportunity that was awarded to him after being a good example of worshiping Jesus in the jail and then not leaving when the walls came down. And so we want to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. We want to proclaim the gospel with our example. We want to live selfless lives that might raise curiosity from those who are in the middle of crises. There are many people right now who are indifferent to the gospel and indifferent to spiritual things. How do you engage them? How do you reach them? Well, Live and be an example to them. Be a friend to them. Show them love. Show them passion. And then you're going to discover opportunistic moments, opportunities where crises arise in their lives and they start asking you questions. You know, my life isn't going well. I'm not holding it together very well. I've seen you endure some tough things. How did you get through that? And you can talk about Jesus. You can talk about how your joy isn't ultimately tied to your circumstance, but your joy is tied to this person named Jesus who loves you like crazy and who's holding you together even though other things in your life may be falling apart. So we want to proclaim the gospel in all these kinds of ways. We want to see the gospel go forth and churches started similar to those that, similar to the one that happened in Philippi. But looking back at verse 1, Paul and Timothy You discover that as we do that, we do this. Here's the description. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We proclaim the gospel. We do these kinds of things as servants of Christ Jesus. That's who we are. We are servants of Jesus. The word servant there literally means slave. And it's a striking image because we're talking about joy, but this letter of joy starts off with this note of servanthood, this note of slavery, this note of being attached and subordinate to another. And yet joy is found in this. You see, slavery and joy, servanthood and joy don't seem to go together in our lives. We think in order to be joyful, in order to be happy, we've got to be free, autonomous creatures. We've got to be able to call our own shots, do our own thing. If we are unable to operate in that kind of way, then joy will escape us. And so we assume that joy comes with freedom. But here's the challenge to that. Freedom is an illusion. There is no such thing as freedom. It is an illusion that does not exist in this world. In other words, every person you meet, every person in this room is a servant of someone or something. Either you were a servant to different people, places, and things in this world, or you were a servant of the God who transcends this world. Every one of us are servants. Every one of us are slaves. The question is, to whom or to what are we submitting to? To whom or to what what are we seeking life and joy in and from? You see, freedom and joy in the Christian life does not come through Uh, living under the illusion of freedom, seeking out our own path, self-discovery, self-discovery through rebelling against God or rebelling against Jesus, but it actually comes through submission. This is an image I've shared with you before, but I like to to use it because my daughter Delaney, uh, I like to teach her things, and, and one of the ways that I teach her about this idea of being a servant of Jesus, being a slave to Jesus, is I give her a finger trap. And she'll take this finger trap, if you've seen them, and, and she'll stick both fingers in the ends like she's supposed to do. And, and so I'll stick her fingers in this finger trap, and I'll say, okay, Delaney, get free. And she'll start pulling apart. She'll start pulling with all her might, trying to get her fingers out of the trap. But you know that if you pull back against the design of the trap, you're just gonna, it's going to clamp down on your fingers, and you can't go free. You can't go where you really want to go. You're, you're trapped. You're stuck. And so as she's pulling back, trying to find freedom, trying to get out of that trap, I'll ask her, so Delaney, is there another direction you can go with your fingers? 
And she said, and she'll say, well, I guess I can, I can push them closer together. I said, why don't you try that? And so rather than pulling her fingers apart and the trap constricting around her fingers, she pushes them closer together and then it loosens and she's able to pull them out and she's able to go free. You see, joy in the Christian life is not found when you and I rebel and we pull back against Jesus. We rebel and we pull back against the creator. Freedom and joy in the Christian life comes through our submission. It comes through submitting to Christ. It comes through recognizing his sovereignty, recognizing his goodness, recognizing his grace towards us in every circumstance we find ourselves in, even the tough ones. Because not only is Paul referring to himself as a servant of Christ while he's in prison, he's understanding that as a servant of Christ, he knows that no servant is greater than their master. I don't know if he ever heard the words that Jesus told the other disciples. Maybe he just caught it from some of the other disciples. But there's a moment towards the end of the Gospels where Jesus sits his disciples down and he warns them about how hard life is going to get for them. And how being his servant, being his follower, isn't going to award them with a prosperous, peaceful, comfortable life. It will actually introduce challenges and there will be friction in their lives because of their following Jesus and so he would tell his disciples no servant is greater than his master as if to say that if Jesus suffered in his life you and I should not be surprised if we suffer in ours but if we are suffering we are suffering as servants of Jesus and so whatever situation or circumstance we are in we are recognizing we're submitting to Jesus's leadership in our lives another unique thing about what Paul says there when he describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus it looks like when he's in chains when he's in prison when he's under Roman guard uh, which we'll refer to later it looks like he's a servant of Caesar doesn't it looks like he's a slave to the Roman emperor But Paul refuses to give the emperor that much credit. He refuses to give Caesar that much credibility over and control over his life. He says, no, I'm here, but I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. Don't forget that. And because he had that perspective, he was able to maintain a sense of purpose even in prison. You jump down to verse 12 and you get this crazy statement where he assures the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There was purpose in his imprisonment. He would have missed that had he considered himself a servant of Caesar and not a servant of Christ, had he considered himself above his master, thinking Jesus must not be watching over him. Jesus must not really care about him. Why else would he be going through all the things that he is going through? So he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, joy and freedom then starts there. It starts when you and I submit to Jesus. We press into Jesus. But then he goes on and he makes another statement about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, I love that phrase. Not only is he saying we are servants of Christ Jesus, speaking to our purpose in the world, He says that we are saints in Christ Jesus, speaking of our identity. It's a beautiful description saying every believer in Philippi is a saint in Christ Jesus. Every believer in Philippi is a holy person, a consecrated person, a hallowed person. Every person in Christ Jesus is a saint. And it's true not only for the Philippians who read this book, it is true of those of you who right now are trusting in Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself in such noble terms, but you are a saint in Christ Jesus. 
You are a holy person in Christ Jesus. You might say, well, I don't feel very holy. I don't feel very saintly. I feel more guilty than saintly. I feel more anxious than saintly. I feel more joyless than saintly. But notice what Paul is saying. There are two two locations he's pointing out in this verse. He's saying to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi. All the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi. What does that mean for you and I except that the gospel, the key to indestructible joy, it drives us to this point where we say that the gospel provides indestructible joy because no matter where we are at in this world, we are in Christ. No matter where you are at right now, you are in Christ. You may be in a hard place, but you're still in Christ. You may be in a dry place, you are still in Christ. You may be in a guilty place, you are still in Christ. You may be in an anxious place, you are still in Christ. Nothing can change your identity. Nothing can reverse that reality. So what we do in our search for joy and happiness is we come around the language of Scripture and we take it into our lives with childlike faith, believing that what God says about us is true. And so when God calls you holy, you are holy. When God says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. When God says you are strong in Christ, you are strong in Christ. No matter where you are at in life, you are in Christ. And that perspective changes everything. That perspective opens up our hearts to see and to receive the reality of an indestructible joy. This means that we are in Christ, whether we are in prison or in a palace. This means that we are in Christ whether we are getting a promotion or whether we are getting canned. This means we are in Christ whether we are healthy or sick. This means that we are in Christ whether we are rich or poor. We are in Christ whether we are centralized in society or marginalized in society. We have the nobility, the divine nobility of being in Christ. That is who we are. This is true whether we are powerful or powerless, whether we are a fruitful or barren, whether we are married or single, the source of our identity is found in Christ and he then becomes the chief source of our joy and our gladness and our happiness because that reality cannot be reversed, it cannot be revoked, it is utterly fixed and sealed as surely as you are sitting in this room right now. So Paul is saying we are servants of Christ, we are saints in Christ, referring to purpose and referring to identity. And if we're going to talk about an indestructible joy, we have to get on board with what the scripture says about those two realities. And then he goes on, he says in verse 2, using this incredible language, he then tells the Philippian readers, and by extension you and I today, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's my question for you. How do you think in that most immediate moment, most immediately, how do you think God's grace and God's peace was going to the Philippian believers? What form was it taking in that moment? Well, you consider what Paul's doing. What is he doing? He's writing a letter. Grace and peace is going to the Philippians through the words he's writing to them. 
So what that means for you and I in our search and journey for an indestructible joy, it means that grace and peace, which provides the foundation for joy rising in our lives, it comes to us primarily through the scriptures. When we listen to what God is saying about us and we listen to what God, the truth God is speaking over us, grace and peace comes into our lives most immediately and most readily through the book you are holding in your hands right now, coming through the scriptures. That's where grace and peace comes to our lives. It's, it's a challenge because I know some of us, you're sitting in this room and the scriptures for you do not represent a source of joy. The scriptures for you represent a source of frustration. And perhaps you even blame the scriptures for your joylessness. But here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you as we study the book of Philippians and as you listen to what God has to say through the words on these pages, the scriptures are not responsible for your joylessness. What's responsible for your joylessness is alternative belief. Meaning, there are other voices speaking into your life about who you are. There are other voices speaking into your life about what your life should be about and where you should find joy and happiness. There are other voices speaking into your life right now. And the pursuit of an indestructible joy comes when we see that God's voice, God's word in the scriptures trumps every other voice. And if we are joyless in our approach to Jesus, it's not the result of the scriptures, it's the result of alternative belief. We are putting more faith in what other people have to say about what it means to be happy, about what other, what other people have to say about what it means to be joyful, what other people have to say about who we are and what we should do in the world. We're putting more faith in their voices than we are in the voice of God coming through the pages of scripture. Grace and peace comes to us through the scriptures. That's how it was coming alive for the Philippians when they would read this book and they would be reminded of their identity. They were saints in Christ. And they would be reminded of their purpose. They were servants in Christ. Grace and peace coming through the scriptures. This is why we want to listen to what God has to say about our lives. What God has to say about the lives we live in this world where joy and happiness is truly found. Another example of this would be found in Jeremiah. I mentioned Jeremiah earlier as he was the guy who pointed out these broken cisterns that people tend to seek joy in and life from. But there's a moment where not long after Jesus, after Jeremiah makes that statement, there comes a moment in Jeremiah chapter 15 where he talks about the scriptures in ways that I want us to embrace with childlike faith tonight. There comes a moment in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Listen to what Jeremiah has to say about the words that were coming to him from God. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. I I consumed them. I took them in. I considered them. I let them sit on my mouth and then I swallowed them and they began to affect me. Your words were found and I ate them and this is what happened. Your words became for me a joy and a delight and the delight of my heart. For I have been, here's the identity, called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. 
I, your words were found. I ate them. Your words, your words became for me a source of joy and the delight of my heart. If you want to find the key to indestructible joy, we need to bend our ear to the voice of God in the scriptures. We need to let him determine our identity. We need to let him determine the direction of our lives. We bend our ears to God's voice in the scriptures, listening to him, for that is where grace and peace will come to us. The scriptures will determine our identity. The scriptures will determine our purpose. The scriptures will remind us of what's true in a land of lies. So we want to listen to the scriptures. I experienced this personally when I was 17 years old. I professed faith in Jesus early on in life. I was exposed to the gospel early and often, so I put my faith in Jesus. Then I got older, my faith kind of grew stale, and I began seeking joy and pleasure with all the things that teenage angst would drive a teenager to seek joy and happiness in. And so I went off and kind of did my thing. But eventually, all the drinking I was engaging in, all the partying I was engaging in, eventually I just found myself just empty and dry. I was about 17 years old, and I was working at at the shoe department. My dad used to call me Al Bundy. Al Bundy's a character from Married with Children, an old school show, but he was a shoe salesman. So my dad thought it was cute to call me Al Bundy when I became a shoe salesman at age 17. But there came a moment after wrestling with this dryness, after seeking joy in all these other things and just turning up empty, they weren't coming through as advertised for me. And, and I began to draw this conclusion on myself, saying, well, God must be done with me. God's not really for me. I've really kind of cut myself off from him forever. And I was having these thoughts as a 17-year-old. And, and I remember sitting in the shoe department one day, and I was sitting on one of the, the benches in between the aisles. And, and I came to a point where I just asked God, I said, God, if you are still for me, if you are still with me, I, I need to know. Because right now I'm not feeling it. Right now I'm not sensing it. I just need to know. And like five minutes later, this lady I'd never seen before and haven't seen since, this lady who never gave me her name walks into the room. She comes through the store. She turns the aisle that I'm on. She walks right up to me and hands me a sheet of paper. I take this sheet of paper. I open it up. And what do I see? I see Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I read the words. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's word, his grace and his peace coming to me through this timely, truthful, transformative word. And it ignited a joy in me that has changed the trajectory of my life so that I did leave that moment a changed man. Not a perfect man but a man who was understanding where joy is found. A man who understood that God wants my happiness to be found in him. He wants me to know that joy can be had in him. And so he assured me of that through the scriptures that he sent to me that day. And ultimately, my prayer as we journey through the book of Philippians is that there will be many moments like that in all of our lives as we study this book together And we experience grace and truth, grace and peace coming to us, reminding us of our purpose, reminding us of our identity, drawing us to the true and chief source of an indestructible joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us in this moment as we consider these truths, just kind of dipping our toe into this beautiful letter written to the Philippians. I pray that as we study this book over the next few weeks, 
God, that your grace would abound in the process, that peace would come, that joy would bloom. I pray that you would make us a joyful people in you. And I pray that you would do that all in Jesus' name. Amen.